0: everybody, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and you can always find us on social media at Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's facebook.com backslash mediumcoolpod. You can also find us at Medium Cool Pod on Instagram. Just search for it, and we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. If you get a chance, please subscribe, follow. Wherever you're listening to this, please do that, and uh, if you get a chance uh, and you like what you hear or, or don't, however you, however passionately you feel, either way, please uh, go ahead and rate the podcast and and leave us a little uh, review. Help people know what they're getting into, and it helps us out as well. We really appreciate it. Uh, today's going to be an awesome episode. Not only are we going to be talking about one of my favorite my, one of my favorite films in recent years, in like the last ten years, but also uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit of doing. Let's start over. Easy for me to say. Uh, I'm going to be continuing the early Bergman Marathon with his 1950 film, To Joy, and his 1951 film, Summer Interlude. But my favorite, one of my Pantheon favorites that we're going to be talking about was a listener's choice. They could choose between 13 Assassins, Michael Mann's Thief, and Calvary from 2014, and it was the latter, Calvary, by John Michael McDonough. Uh, I think last week I called him McDonough. ...or something. I said it weird, but it's McDonough. It's fine. John Michael McDonough directed Calvary from 2014. Really excited to get into that, but not only am I talking to Joe today, we had a special guest... Our friend Sam, the movie man Watermeyer, he has uh, left voicemails for certain episodes, given his favorite film of 2020, and and he's talked about other movies. But he uh, talks with us today as well. So there are three of us talking about Calvary. It's going to be great. But I don't want to take much time on this. I definitely want to get to the early Bergman marathon because I have quite a bit to say, and I'm very excited. This I got to say this. Going through these Bergman movies, you know, I bought this Ingmar Bergman cinema box set from Criterion for my birthday in like 2019 or something paid the full price i was ready for it who cares and i've been sitting on this thing for like 2 years and and like like matthew sosi who's going to be joining me here in a couple weeks I'm talking about bergman he bought the set and he watched it during the pandemic like during complete shutdown whenever we were just like at home and it's like man that's smart why didn't i do that but now i made the excuse because this is technically 75 years since ingmar bergman's first film in 1946 which we've covered which was crisis And I was like, man, this is a perfect year to start working through this box set. Now, I'm not watching every single film yet. I'm only watching what we're covering here. And then I'll go back and try to fill in all those little gaps. Uh, But this has been a really fruitful exercise. I learned that I'm a much bigger Ingmar Bergman fan than I ever imagined I would be. Uh, I always, you know, in two thousand three, four, five, 5, when I was trying to watch a lot of Kurosawa, Fellini, Bergman, stuff like that, French New Wave, all those movies. Uh, Bergman was kind of a snooze for me, even though I thought his movies were fascinating. They were just kind of slow. and uh, I don't want to call them boring, because they did keep my interest. Like, Persona kind of blew my mind, but I had no idea why, and I never really wanted to, like, watch it again. I just kind of thought they were kind of cool, you know? But, man, I am really loving this. So uh, I'm excited to get to it. I'm going to go ahead and... uh, And move along into the early Bergman Marathon, we're going to start with his 1950 film, To Joy. All right, today we're going to be talking about the fourth film in my early Bergman Marathon. This is To Joy from 1950, written and directed by Ingmar Bergman, released on February 20th, 1950 in Sweden. And the film follows Stig after he discovers that his wife, Marta, has been killed in an accident. He looks back on their relationship beginning with when he and Marta uh, were starting out as violinists together in an orchestra overseen by conductor Sonderby, played by the great Victor Herstrom, who we will be talking about in Wild Strawberries here in a couple weeks. And after Stig and Marta were married, Stig's ambition was overwhelming and his ego oversized. Stig struggles with the difficulties the couple encounters in its day-to-day life, as well as his inability to accept the career of a soloist, which makes him a bitter partner. He also starts seeing more of an old swinger friend of his, Mikel, and his much younger wife, Nellie, whom Stig forms an adulterous relationship with. Now there are scenes that really start to show Bergman mature here. One scene is when Marta reads a review of Stig's performance as a soloist and he goes off about the review, but the camera focuses on Marta's response to the outrage, her internal conflict. This is a powerful moment to me. And there's also this, you know, really exceptional scene where the orchestra starts playing Ode to Joy, which is, you know, part of where the title comes from, of course. Uh, while Stig is experiencing this great tragedy. I mean, really, really well done stuff. The juxtaposition of Ode to Joy, you know, where uh, Victor Herstrom, as the conductor, as the composer, whatever, he didn't compose Ode to Joy, of course, but the conductor is sitting there, you know, telling everyone that this song is all about joy. You have to experience the most intense joy. And all the while, Stig is obviously experiencing some of the, you know, uh, Greatest grief that he has ever experienced. So you know there are some really powerful moments here, and that's what I remember about To Joy. That you know the exceptional scenes, but a lot of this movie is honestly kind of boring, <laughs> lacking in ways that even some of Bergman's even earlier films did better. But there are certain scenes that really get me, like when Marta and Stig are reunited at one point, and again when you see the film or if you've seen it hopefully you will remember them reuniting but this scene gets me less because I want them to reunite because I like them together or for narrative purposes but more because it's executed well and makes sense for the characters now Stig is an asshole okay uh like an absolute asshole he's played by Stig Olin and yes, the actor's name is Stig, and the character's name is Stig, but uh, Stig Olin's been in several Bergman movies, uh, both that we've covered and will continue uh, with the marathon and we will cover also. Stig was someone early on that was in several of Bergman's films, but, you know, what you'll notice if you watch a lot of these early films is most of the men in these early Bergman films are assholes. I mean, and, and maybe there is like a generational aspect to it, but man, they're dicks, and Stig is an asshole in this movie. And, you know, I'm, I'm not one that needs to like a protagonist or, or supporting character to like a movie. You know, I love Freddie Quell in The Master, and I love Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood, even though they're both complete heels, you know. But this is different. Now, to explain the difference, I'm going to give you, like, I'm going to explain a wrestling term here, okay? Because uh, anybody who's listened to this, you know, more than this episode knows that I talk too much about wrestling. So in wrestling, there are different types of heat which is basically when a heel or a bad guy you know, gets the crowd to hate them or gets them you know, to become more of a bad guy. They call that heat. And you know, the more heat, the better, unless it's what they call go-away heat. Now, go away heat is when the crowd not only hates the heel, but is actually turned away by them. Like, doesn't want to show up and watch them because they actually just hate them. They're annoying. They don't like them. It's not that they love to hate them, they just don't like this person. That's called go away heat, okay? They don't even care to see the heel get their asses kicked, all right? They just want them gone. Now, Stig into joy has go-away heat with me, all right? Uh, I don't like Stig at all. So that that is one serious criticism of the film because I think he, for me, even the moments that he would be redeemed to some extent, he's already been such an asshole, I don't buy into the redemption. So he's just kind of a problem to me in the film. Uh, but, you know, Stig and his swinger friend's wife, so Mikkel being the swinger friend, his wife Nellie, they're having a known affair, as in Marta even knows it's happening, and you know Stig is just a piece of shit. And Nellie is played by—I'm going to try to do this name justice here—Margit Karlqvist. Hopefully, I said that correctly. But she, Margit, looks like a modern-day actress to me, and I say that as in you know, if you if you go look at Doris Day, or Audrey Hepburn, or Grace Kelly. I mean, these people, you know, these these actors look like like you know beautiful women as you would see today but you know just the way they're dressed or the way that they're put together they don't like really I don't know there's like a 50s-ness to it or there's a whatever decade they're from right but man I just feel like you could put Margit in a film today and she would just work like I mean she just looks like you know I don't know she looks like uh uh someone from 2021 to me but anyways it was just something I noticed a random little aside but I digress the point is in the story, I don't want Stig, or might be Stig, now that I'm looking at it, maybe Stig, I don't know. But anyways, I'm gonna keep going with my really terrible pronunciation here. I don't want Stig and Marta to stay together. That's they're toxic for one another. So it makes it difficult for me to root for them because they're trying so hard. And I'm just like, but I don't want you to do the thing. It seems problematic. And, you know, there are some films that even if I don't want the people to stay together, I understand why they have such a hard time separating. I totally get it. It's really hard whenever you love or have loved someone to want to be away from them. But not in this film. The relationship was difficult for me to get behind, which caused the film to suffer overall. Now, that said, the classical music, because this is also about the arts, you know, and the orchestra aspect of it is a, a big part. And so that said, the classical music sequences with the orchestra, those are great. And the sequences where Victor Hurstrom's uh, Sonderby is conducting the orchestra, man, I love those se- sequences. And Victor Hurstrom is just an absolute pure-cut diamond, this guy. He's so great. But all in all... There are some really great moments in 2 Joy, moments that I remember more than anything, but overall it ultimately feels forgettable. And, you know, for what, the 30 minutes that are decent to great, there's another hour that is subpar. And though the music is great and the photography at times can be really, really good, and at other times it, it's always competent, uh, you know, it, the music is not the purpose of the film. And it's, it's just one component of many. And the fundamental aspects of this film are not up to Bergman's standard even at this point in his career. And for that, the film is ultimately a neutral experience. Now, I gave Two Joy a two and a half out of five. It's a competently made film by someone who had explored the subject matter better up to this point even, causing this film to feel unnecessary. Now, if you've seen it and agree or disagree, please hit us up on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can email us mediumcoolpod at gmail.com, mediumcoolpod at all of our social media. Hit us up. You can also find me on Twitter. Tell me why I'm right or wrong uh, at Austin Glidden. You will find me there and you can find all that stuff in our description notes as well. Uh, We're going to go ahead and move on to the next film, our fifth film in the early Bergman Marathon, Summer Interlude from 1951. All right, next, number five in our early Bergman Marathon, Summer Interlude from 1951, written and directed by Ingmar Bergman, and also co-written by Herbert Gravinius. This is the guy that also single-handedly wrote Thirst, And the person that I, you know, criticized pretty harshly last week, uh, we will see how I feel about this endeavor. But Imar Bergman and Gravinius both wrote this. It was released in Sweden originally October 1st, 1951. But we got a uh, release here in the U.S. October 26th, 1954. So three years later, we finally got it here. And the film is considered frank, fresh, and delightful. Summer Interlude is an intimate love story about a jaded prima ballerina reminiscing about her first love affair after she unexpectedly receives her former lover's old diary. What's particularly interesting about Summer Interlude is that Bergman touches on many of the themes that would define the rest of his career, even more so here, such as isolation, performance, and the inescapability of the past. The latter theme is front and center here, as Mary, played by the lovely Maj Nielsen. Uh, Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. I'm going to call her Ms. Nielsen now. But, uh, you know... Uh, Marie has to deal with the repressed feelings of grief and desire as she relives the moments of the one summer she shared with the aforementioned lover, Henrik, played by someone we've talked about before, uh, Berger Malmsten. And Marie is a successful but emotionally distant prima ballerina in her late 20s. And during a problem-filled dress rehearsal day for a production of the ballet Swan Lake, she is unexpectedly sent the diary of her first love, Henrik, a college boy whom she met uh, and fell in love with while visiting her Aunt Elizabeth and Uncle Erland, uh, their house on a summer vacation 13 years prior. With the cancellation of the dress rehearsal, Marie takes a boat across to the island where her relationship with Henrik took place and remembers their playful and carefree adventures. Marie is fascinating to me as a character. I love this performance by Ms. Nielsen, who was also in the film we talked about earlier as Marta, the wife in Two Joy, and would be in Bergman's next film after Summer in Lute called Waiting Women, which we will not be covering here on uh medium cool but you should certainly go check it out i can't wait to dig in now out of the performances i've seen uh by ms nielsen here which is only to joy i think this is her best performance by far with bergman um seeing as i've only seen one other film and though she was good in it i didn't really care for the film but it helps that her character seems to have been written just for her because she embodies Marie perfectly and seemingly with ease. I mean, there's a point where you see her at the younger age and then you see her at her 13 years later age. And I actually didn't realize at first they were the same person. Goodness gracious. I don't know. That's probably on me, but I mean, I really felt like she did a great job there. Ms. Nielsen is stunning in the film too, looking like the most beautiful of the 1950s actresses. Uh, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I didn't have a screen crush on her here, uh, not because she's that cool of a character, but because of just how great she the performance is. I just really, really, that stuck out to me. I really loved it. And also, she's reminiscent of uh, Moira Shearer in The Red Shoes, the main the lead in The Red Shoes, another film about ballet and possibly the best ever. Uh, on the topic. And if, if you haven't seen the Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger masterpiece, The Red Shoes, go do that now. Okay, pause this and go watch The Red Shoes. It's a 1948 British classic. It's really, really great. Regarding Bergman's themes from earlier, as I mentioned, you know, we see a lot here in Summer Interlude that will later be staple themes across his filmography, including the melancholic setting of summer. Like we see in summers or uh, smiles of a summer night,, uh, youthful romance and that eventually leads to a loss of innocence, which we see in summer with Monica, which we'll talk about next week. and a loss of, you know, faith in God, which we see in movies like Winter Light. And in one secret sequen- sequence, uh, easy for me to say, in one sequence, Henrik and Marie pick wild strawberries together, obviously a prelude to the film Wild Strawberries, my favorite, Bergman film uh, to date. We'll see if that changes as I work through some of these films I haven't seen. But additionally, Hendrik's dying aunt in the film plays chess with a priest who states that he visits her to better know death, which is darkly comic, and I think that's great. But, you know, this obviously predates and indirectly foreshadows the famous chess match between the knight and death himself in Bergman's The Seventh Seal, which would come out, uh, uh, what, six years later or something. But Summer Interlude is the first early Bergman film that I thought really felt like a true Bergman film, like the Bergman I knew whenever I would watch stuff like The Seventh Seal and Wild Strawberries and Smiles of a Summer Night and, and Persona and all of these great Bergman films that I'd seen. Up to now, I felt like this is him kind of, you know, finding his, his style and all that. This film actually feels like he's found it, and now he's ready to start fine-tuning it and tightening some screws and, you know, really getting into it. Man, this picture, I think, is great. Visually, Bergman does more interesting and introspective cinematography here more than he's done in any other film, using some techniques he will later make famous and use to much deeper effect. For much deeper effect, and the film, you know, was shot in like two and a half months, and I just absolutely love the way this movie looks from the opening moments. This film feels like it's on a different level to me, uh, just a completely different level from the Bergman films prior. The on-location, naturally lit exteriors are awesome, especially with the incredible restoration used in the Criterion Collection box set, the Ingmar Bergman Cinema box set, and uh, you know the the beautifully photographed ballet sequences. I mean, they're really great. Also, it, man, it just feels so good, and it looks so beautiful. I mean, wow. I don't know. I, I, I was really kind of floored by this, and I think largely because I didn't have expectations of it being as good as I thought it was. And the final point I'll make is the film was written by both Bergman and Gravinius. Again, I'm probably butchering that name, but Gravinius. Uh, and and it, you know, if you listen to last week's early Bergman content, uh, Gravinius wrote Thirst, and I was pretty down on his writing. Uh, not being, sh- I wasn't sure if it was the lack of Bergman writing or if I just didn't like that film. You know, it's but it, that's the one thing that is not like the others is the writing was just different. And I wasn't a fan, but that is immediately flip flopped here, <laughs> and uh, I could say it's because Bergman is involved, but I think they actually just work well together. Maybe that just might be the 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 thing because you know there there's a well rounded emotional spectrum here that I'm unsure one of them would have accomplished on their own. There's uh actually this really great sequence that reminds me of Annie Hall where uh and it made me chuckle because Marie is talking to Henrik and she says just out of nowhere she goes, "I think we should kiss now, don't you?" And it's it's very much like like let's get this out of the way. We're both wanting to do this. Let's just get it out of the way. It's like that Annie Hall sequence where where um uh, Alvi stops annie in the middle of the sidewalk it's just like why don't we just get it over with now that it reminds me of that scene it's really great and i wouldn't be surprised with woody allen being such a huge bergman fan if this wasn't some sort of influence on him but uh yeah it's it's really great and I, man i just i feel like gushing about it even though this movie is not perfect by any means uh it's the one that's excited me the most so if you can't tell, I really enjoyed this early Bergman picture, and it's leaps and bounds ahead of everything I've seen before it. And as I said earlier, this feels like it's on a different level. But this is also another drama by Bergman, so in many ways, I'm not surprised that this is not the film that kind of kickstarted his his international celebrity. Uh, but you know, you can see a true talent at work here, and the nostalgia and pathos in this film is just really powerful to me. I gave Summer Interlude a 4 out of 5. If you haven't seen Summer Interlude and want to dig into Bergman, this is a great place to begin. I think this is kind of the first real powerful film I think uh that that has uh that I've seen, I guess I should say. If you have seen the film and you agree or disagree, as I said before with TooJoy, Joy, please hit us up on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Austin Glidden. Uh, you can also find Medium Cool on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching Medium Cool Pod. Next, uh, I'm going to be sitting with Joe and Sam, and we're going to be having a long-form conversation about John Michael McDonough's Calvary from 2014. Let's go.
1: I'm here to listen to whatever you have to say. I'm going to kill you, father. Certainly a startling opening line. I was raped by a priest when I was seven years old. Why don't you make a formal complaint? What good would it do if the man's dead? Things you hear in confessions these days. The mess people make of their lives. You're a very nice-looking young woman. This is my daughter, Fiona. But you're a priest. I was married before I became a priest. You can do that, can you? It would appear so. There's no point in killing a bad priest, but killing a good one, that'd be a shock.
2: Could have a word. Hope we don't get locked in here, we'll have to make love to keep warm. We have to ask ourselves, what does this man want? He wants to be
0: loved. He wants to be admired. What do you see when you look at me? You see
2: a sophisticated, eminent man in the prime of his life. He wants to be feared. Is this a police matter? No, it's a personal thing. What did you say? You wanted for, father? I didn't say.
1: Your church is on fire. It
2: takes a lot of nerve to burn down a church.
1: Unless there's a personal angle. Nobody wear a grudge against your father, no? I'm going to kill you because you're innocent. Not right now, though. i give you enough time to put your house in order. The time has gone, you don't even realise it. My time will
2: never be gone.
1: So you're sure there's a god that Father, yeah? Well, the future he knows. Do you need help? I have, have had murderous feelings, I have to admit.
2: Referring to the commandment, thou shalt not kill. What about self-defense? It's a tricky
1: one, all right. Run along now, Father. Your sermon is finished. He needs taking down a pig or two. That's what he needs. Take me down, then. Venom wasted.
0: All right, everybody, we are here today to talk about uh, the listener's choice pick of three of my favorites Pantheon movies, um, and this was the winner. Um, Calvary from 2014. It is written and directed by uh, John Michael McDonough. It stars Brendan Gleeson, Chris O'Dowd, Kelly Riley, M. Emmett Walsh, Aidan Gillen, Isaac Du and Don Hill Gleeson. You know, there are more people, but those are kind of the bigger names people might recognize. It was released April 11, 2014 in Ireland and in the UK, and then had a limited US release August 1st, the same year. And uh, it, it I don't know what the budget was, but uh, it brought in $16.9 million, which for a kind of small... You know, Irish independent film—that's that's a a lot better than a lot of others have done. And before we jump into this, uh, I just want to uh, say that not only do we have Joe with us today, but we have our good friend Sam, the movie man Watermeyer. Please say hello.
1: Hey guys, thanks for having me.
0: You are um, welcome. We'll see how thankful I am that you're here as we go along.
1: Long last. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, we've we've. We've teased also him a lot that of pressure.
2: Lots yeah, there, of is, pressure. there is a
0: lot of pressure because we've teased Uh-oh. him for a long time that he's banned.
1: Right. And on, so yes.
0: now, now he's trying to win his, his de-banment on this I uh, better not blow it. <laughs> that was a... Okay. Anyways, we're going to go ahead. We're happy you're here, man. And we're going to go Thank ahead you. and uh, jump into Calvary here. And uh, Brendan Geeson. Brendan Gleeson, I say. Whoops. Listen, everybody. Austin's having a stroke, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I woke up like an hour ago and only got out of bed like a half an hour ago. (laughs) I'm working on this. All right. Thank you very much. Brendan Gleeson plays the lead as Father James, a proverbial square peg in a round hole as he lends his spiritual services as priest of a windswept parish on the coast of Ireland he deals with a wide a wide variety of parishioners that all seem to have way too many sins <clears throat> father james uh, a flawed character himself lives immersed in a community in the community even though he stands out as a clear outsider but is welcomed nonetheless though the community's way of welcoming people looks strangely like you know a little kindergarten boy being mean to a little girl that he likes Uh, All of the parishioners uh, push the father's buttons constantly as they are uh, trying to bring him down to what they perceive as their level. But one day in the confessional booth, Father James listens to an unknown parishioner confess. Well, not confess to sins, but rather confess his past. The parishioner says that, He was abused and assaulted by a priest when he was seven, introducing the story with the shocking opening lines of the film, I first tasted semen at the age of seven. He proceeds to say nothing will change if a bad priest dies, but if a good one dies, that will get people talking. So the parishioner tells Father James that he will kill him in one week's time, the following Sunday, giving him enough time to get his life in order. The film proceeds to follow Father James around the next week, as he talks to different people in the community. Now, John Michael McDonough is the brother of playwright and filmmaker Martin McDonough, who has brought us such great dark comedy classics as In Bruges from 2008 and Seven Psychopaths from 2012. John Michael, however, made his critically acclaimed The Guard in 2011. But both of their styles are somewhat similar. But Calvary has something special all its own. There is a heart underlying everything, as well as a hurt. This town needs Father James, even if they don't want to admit it. They all hurt in one way or another, and it's this heart that Father James brings that makes Calvary excel. Now, I must admit, uh, this was my favorite film of the year, 2014, um, but seven years later, it has certainly fallen down the list, though it still holds a firm mid-card spot on my list. So Nonetheless, it's no surprise I love this film. So, Sam, I'm going to start with you, since you are you are our, our newest guest here. Uh, you'd seen this before. Uh, this time around, did you get hung up on the glib, sometimes shocking cynicism and irreverent dark humor literally every character offers here? Or mm-hmm. were you able to bask in the honesty the film has at its core? Where did this leave you?
1: Uh, I fell on the ladder, <clears throat> I think, because like uh, Father James himself, the film is... Ah, uh, very disarming. Um, even right from the very beginning, you know, it opens with uh, that that disturbing opening line, and um, Father James even pokes fun at it. He says, "You know, that's certainly a startling opening line." Um, so it has this kind of self-aware humor that um, kind of eases you into the film, even even though it is very dark and and uh, uh, very cynical. Um, uh, the the warmth of Father James um, kind of outweighs uh, the the darkness, I would say.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Joe. I'm gonna pass this on to you. Also, same to you. Did you get hung yeah. up on the glib, cynical, and irreverent dark humor? Uh, you know, or were you able to bask in its honesty? Uh, how'd you feel? Uh, you
2: know, you know, for a while, the the humor, the darkness of it, did kind of have me. Um, uh, you know, when that, that first line caught me, I mean, it, it it did catch me off guard. I was like, what What did he just say? And, it, you know, and because it was just it's so it's delivered so nonchalantly and, and the whole movie is like that. Um, but it yeah, no, I, I kind of as it went along, I, I was kind of there was a point kind of toward the middle where I thought, OK, what's really happening in this movie? Because it just feels like a collection of scenes. It feels like Father James is going through these scenes this collection of scenes where people are just hammering on him in one way or another, and he's trying really hard to be to be something good and and failing miserably most of the time, and um, and then as it went along, I was like, okay, I, okay, okay, this all makes sense, and yeah, and it it felt to me as it went along like it was Father James having a bad dream about his people, about his parishioners. <laughs> And about, about a third of the way through, I thought, this is just this the way that these people are so bizarre. All of their reactions are off. It feels like he's having this bizarre nightmare that just rambles and meanders and moves from one thing to another. And everyone everyone seems like they know something that he doesn't. And he's just perpetually kind of confused and determined to the whole thing like he's he's acting like he knows all of it but he seems completely mystified by every one of these people and how to how to deal with them and how to help them and um i i, I was really into it i was really into that um, I, I kind of looked at it toward the end as the people are eating the church themselves you know they're they're like you know the, the church is here in theory, to help, and the people are kind of eating it alive, um, kind of willfully and gleefully. Um, I'm not sure if that's necessarily the intended meaning, but that's kind of what I got out of it myself. You know, as a as a general theme. But um, but there, there's a lot going on here, and, and um, of course, we're going to start talking about it. I'm sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I want to start since you brought it up. I want to start with like the parishioners and how uh, Father James kind of fits into all of that, because uh, it's interesting that you say that you felt like as you were watching Father James, that, Joe, you felt like uh, it's almost like he felt like he might have a grasp on things, but then you realize in practice that he has a grasp on nothing. Yeah. And what's interesting is as I watch it, and coming from a a church background, as we've talked many times on here and all of that, Mm -hmm. um, I remember after I saw Calvary for the first time, I thought, man, I wish Father James was like every pastor just in the world. You know what I mean? And it's, it's yeah. not because he's perfect by any means. It's actually the exact opposite reason. It's because he's imperfect. He's also open to owning up that he's not perfect. And yeah. he does exactly what, in Christianity, you're supposed to do, which is exactly what <laughs> Jesus did. He's not just trying... He's not the other father, right? The, the guy who's mm-hmm. more performative. You know, he is, he is trying to be what they need him to be, even if it's not a fatherly like thing, right? So yeah. the people hate the church. <laughs> you know, like uh yes. <laughs> like they all hate this church pretty much. And uh you have you have the uh oh what's her name? I think it's Teresa, I believe. Um the one that's always talking about her sexual endeavors and you know yeah. is, is going out on Chris O'Dowd's character. And Teresa, yeah. Uh you know, I like every time Teresa gets a chance she does this weird, awkward, flirty thing with the priest, with mm-hmm. Father James, and then yeah. she, or, and or, she feels the need to tell him every time she's had sex with someone that's not her <laughs> husband, right? And Or it's she's like, going to. Yeah, or she's going <laughs> to. Yeah, yeah. And so it's
2: like this, everyone does this, though. That's Veronica. I'm sorry. That's Veronica that... Is the uh is uh Teresa is the one whose husband passed away.
0: That's right. Okay, because I I have IMDB open and then I go, shit, I don't remember any of their names. So I'm gonna I'll get better as one of you are talking. Yeah, I'll get better as one of you are talking. But the point is Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh well no, just the point is like everyone kind of does this, all of them. You know, Chris O'Dowd's character uh basically makes fun of him all the time, he's poking fun, it's always a joke. Um, and uh, you have uh, Adam Gillen, the the doctor, who doesn't really go to the church, but he talks to the father all the time because they go to the same uh, you know uh, uh, bar, and you know they're always kind of around each other. And of course, as a uh, a minister, you you go to the hospital to see people, you know. So he's you know always around the doctor. But it's interesting because by the end of the film, you get this sense. I think, uh, from my perspective at least, you get this sense that. No matter how much they all hate him, this is back to like the little kindergarten boy being mean to the little girl that he likes, uh, because Mm -hmm. they're all so mean to him and they all push his buttons so much. But by the end, you get the sense that, God damn it, they all need him. They don't need the church, Mm -hmm. but they need him as like this person of comfort. He'll be straight with them. He'll call them assholes or idiots. You know, he'll yeah. call them cheaters, whether they are or not, <laughs> you know, like, like yeah. he'll, he'll, he'll do what other, all every other parishioner on the entire, like in the area is afraid to do. He will go confront that thing, even to the extent of giving an old man a gun who has already said he's going to end his life. Right. Yeah. And so, um, I think these people needed him, not just to be a minister, not just to be some performative entity in the community, uh, much like the other priest, but to be the person that is there for them, right? The person that yeah. that needs them, that needs him, despite how shitty they are to him. They need what he has to offer. Uh, yeah. Joe, I think you had something you wanted to say, but I want to pass it off to Sam too. Did you have yeah, something, Sam, Joe? Go it, Sam. Okay, Sam, go for it.
1: Yeah, um, I think in terms of the bitter attitude surrounding father james it's important to note that the film takes place in the wake of the catholic church abuse scandal correct Mm -hmm. um and that sort of looms over the film um there's even a scene where father james is you know walking with a little girl to the beach and her uh father uh drives up and and you know doesn't have very kind words for for the priest. Frantically Um,
0: drives up, by the way. It's like a screeching halt, and he's like yelling. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, So that's, uh, I I think that kind of colors every scene in which uh, the characters are um, challenging Father James, um, you know, being mean to him. Uh, It's also kind of interesting that this movie came out uh, just a year before spotlight, which of course is, you know, uh, about uh, the Boston globe's exposure of the Catholic church, uh, church abuse scandal. Um, so I just wanted to, to, to add that note.
0: Yeah. That was something I definitely wanted to, to, to bring up because like you said, it's almost like, um, uh, I don't know. It's like, it's like the, the coding, whatever the coding would be in, in, in D miniature painting, it would be, it would be the, uh, the dark wash. It's the wash over, <laughs> over the miniature. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's like the, the last coat of paint, right? Is like yeah. this, yeah. this kind of heavy weight of, of the reality. But, and they never really bring it up. I mean, they, they poke a lot of fun, but they never make that solid statement of like, this is why we're being a dick to you. But at the same mm. time, like you're absolutely right. Like That is essentially the subtext of the entire film. Is like, mm-hmm. what do we do with this now? right like yeah. we have this thing yeah. in the world and we're, it's it's kind of affecting everybody whether you're catholic or not like everyone kind of had an opinion on this thing mm-hmm. everyone yeah. is kind of involved in it and like now you know what's going to happen to my children i mean all all of these questions are asked and then uh yeah like what do you do with that and i was thinking about the spotlight thing too cuz i was thinking like Would this be, if you don't know what we're talking about, go watch spotlight and then go watch this movie (laughs) (laughs) because they're not really companion pieces, but they kind of can be in terms of educationally. Right.
1: (laughs) If you want to have a very sad night. Yeah. That would make a good double feature. Yeah, really? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I, you know, uh, that's a thing for me too. And and spotlight will probably be one at some point we'll be doing here. Um, when it's my turn, (laughs) If, if it's not one, Austin, you would be doing, but, um yeah, that that definitely is is a pall over this and and it's they're also, they seem to be pretty careful to establish that that Father James is not one of those people. Um, you know, of course, you you mentioned right at the beginning the outset calling him you know, a, a good priest. and, um, you know, very quickly after that first scene, there's a scene with him with with the altar boy that he's that he has this contempt for. Um, that he's well, maybe maybe not contempt, but he he considers him kind of a troublemaker, and he and he makes sure he he tells him he calls him Machiavellian, and um, you know, and it's like who knows if that's even right, but he's like you're purposely like screwing with me, and I don't like it, and you know, and then that you know that kid kind of pops up a, a few times through the movie, um, at it, it key points, but it's uh yeah, it, it's it's very it's very telling that that certainly is a central theme is. You know that that priests are being now. We're they're kind of becoming being considered by like that getting that common that constant um, comparison to pedophiles. You know, they're this this is now a stereotype of them, and now everyone is of course getting on his case in in one way or another about that. So it's. Um, yeah so that that's of course is a very interesting part of this movie. So you, you should definitely have I mean you don't have to have in-depth knowledge but you want to at least be aware and I think everyone by this point probably is.
0: Yeah, yeah, there is there is at least like a like a a kind of cliche now clichéd stereotype mm-hmm. of like the pedophile priest unfortunately. I mean it, mm-hmm. that whole thing sucks of course and that's an understatement right. to say the least but um but yeah i think anybody can kind of get it but i i think it's also important like you said to kind of have a good mm-hmm. frame framework to kind of go into it if you can mm-hmm. so watch spotlight yeah. first there you go have, have a bummer double feature you know i'm all <laughs> about it i love bummerville yeah. so i'm okay with it oh, yeah. um but yeah you know it, it's it's interesting because and i'm going to start getting into the uh, performances and stuff here i, I want to hear what you guys think about the Uh, different characters and stuff that kind of you gravitated toward that you found some meaning in. Um, But I want to quickly touch on what you just said, Joe, Mm -hmm. that um, it's interesting because you have how people see these priests, right? And most of these priests are people, uh, or at least that they hint at, people believe that most priests have never been in kind of... uh, have never been in relationships or anything. They kind of get into this thing, and they're these these sexually repressed beings. And Mm -hmm. um, uh, what we see with Father James is he was formerly married, and then his wife died. And then you can kind of read into why he became a priest, and we can do that whenever we start talking about the characters, if you want. I think that's very interesting but um but yeah after that he became a priest so he has a daughter and his daughter's Kelly Riley her name's Fiona and she's in the film uh for a little bit and a lot of bit actually and yeah. uh and yeah i just i find it interesting that that's kind of how they separate father james as well like like he didn't come into the priesthood and like repress himself in every way possible essentially like he came out of grief and he found truth to some extent in this yeah. thing, whether it was a spiritual truth or just in the kind of clergyman way of like helping people and becoming this person that is there for people so they can kind of mm-hmm. pay it back and do something good for the world through this terrible kind of experience that he's had. However, one wants to read into it. I find it very interesting that he became a priest after that. Like, yeah, I of course, I interpret it as... He, he decided himself that he could never love another person, you know, to go mm-hmm. into that kind of like movie trope, right? Like I can never yeah. love again. Um, and I, you know, I I tend to kind of lean into that a bit because even sure. he and his daughter at one point start talking about how much they miss her, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And stuff like that. So yeah. he clearly has not fully dealt with this thing. And it's almost like, it's almost a very Amelie uh, aspect to it where, you know, Amelie does all of these great things for other people, but she can't deal with her own problems. And in this film, it's kind of the same thing where it's like, you know, he has this inner grief that he's still sitting with, but he chooses to help other people because it's the only way he can cope with it. And that's how I've always interpreted it. But, you know, we can start with Father James real quick. And then I would love Mm -hmm. for you guys to just like, you know, freestyle it and go into any other characters that mean something to you. But you know, I Father James for me is the key point of this movie. Of course, he's in almost every scene. Mm-hmm. I think he's in every scene, probably. Dude, Brennan Gleeson is incredible. Can I just mm-hmm. say that this he's dude amazing. is amazing? Yeah. Amazing. And when, um, I'll just say, I'll just say, there's a dog incident in the movie, and that yeah. scene kills me. Okay, mm-hmm. and it's but it's his performance. Not not that it, the scene itself doesn't get me. But the way he responds to it is great. Yeah. Also, there's a burning building. I'll just say again, keeping it a little vague. His sure. his response is so great. I mean, you know, we, we've talked mm-hmm. on. Uh, I, I think I might have been talking to uh, Matthew Sosie about this. I think he's the one that said it. Um, but I've always stood by the acting as reacting thing. And talk about reactions! Goodness gracious, yeah. this guy, like Brennan Gleason's mm-hmm. reactions to everything is just so yeah. perfect. Um, I mean, he's great. There's. I want to bring up one more character we haven't talked about, and then I'm going to pass it off to Sam. Um, mm-hmm. Don Gleason, who's Brennan Gleason's son in real life, mm-hmm. plays Freddie Joyce, who is basically a serial killer for all intents and purposes, and he's he's in yeah. this prison, and he's just it's just life in prison, is my understanding. Mm-hmm. And uh, that scene is a pivotal moment to really kind of show the heart of... Father James in terms of you have this guy who seems to be kind of performing for Father James, right? Uh, at least that's yeah. how Father James interprets it. And that is kind of how I interpret it as well. There are moments where you kind of go like, man, is some of this real though? But Don Gleeson's <laughs> so good. So clearly he inherited those genes. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, man, like talking to a serial killer, basically, and the way that Father James speaks to him where there's honesty there and there's bluntness there. And there is some might even call like an aggressiveness there at times, but at times there is also like this, there's still this warmth that's present. Dude, I don't even understand how he does it. It's fantastic. Oh my gosh, Sam, let's talk about the characters, man. How do you feel about father James? And after that, go into any character you want, buddy.
1: All right. Um, Well, going back to the dog scene, I think what's so powerful about uh, that moment is it's kind of, Father James's first moment of real release um, and catharsis, you know, he has a stronger reaction to that than he does to his daughter's suicide attempt. Um, yeah. And, you know, when he uh, sees that she tried to commit suicide, he you know, has kind of a, a darkly, kind of a, a wryly funny response. He says, you know, Oh, I see you made the classic error of, you know, cutting across rather than down. It's, it's like he's kind of trying to protect himself with this bit of wry humor. Um, but with the dog scene, he, he really kind of lets himself feel this full release. Um, and you know, he certainly has a lot of, uh, uh, certainly has a need for that release because um you know the uh, this guy goes through the ringer um uh, quite a bit yeah. um but um let's see i also want to um you know we haven't really talked a lot about chris o'dowd i think this is a pretty revelatory performance from him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's, he's known for mostly comedy. Uh, you know, he's in the British uh, comedy series, The IT Crowd. Um, and, you know, you know him from Bridesmaids, but, um, you know, this is kind of an interesting character and an interesting performance. You, uh, he's almost comic relief for a while. Um, and, yeah. and, and, you know, like a really eccentric uh, character, but um, you know, by the end, he really unleashes uh, a surprising amount of rage. Um, uh, so I just wanted to to touch on him a little bit. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I'll toss it over to you, Joe.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to I want to mention um, M. M. Walsh, who is the writer. He's so good. At- Man, he. This is the guy, Emmett Walsh. You know from comedy upon comedy upon comedy. He was in. Um, he was in The Jerk. Um, that's what I I kind of know him from. Um, I mean, you know him from a million movies: Blade Runner, Critters, Blood Simple. Um, he was in Knives Out. Wow, I didn't even. I don't even remember him in Knives Out. Yeah. Um, but he's in. He's one of those guys from the 70s and 80s, 90s. He's just been in so much. And he, he is a, incredible. He's always, he's a guy that's always there in movies that, you know, you're like, Oh, I kind of vaguely know him from somewhere. And you remember him being really funny and here he's terrific. And he's, he's the, um, the old man you referenced Austin earlier, who, um, you know, he, so he's a, he's a writer who is uh, finishing a book and he, he asked father James for a gun to commit suicide because he is old. And he says, I don't want to, I don't want to not know who I am. I don't want to, you know, like he's afraid of, of dying, you know, a confused old man. And, you know, and as you noted, you know, Father James goes and gets a gun for him. And um, it's, he's just terrific. He just pops up every now and then. And, and like I said, this, this whole kind of strange, kind of the strange layout of this movie is, you know, it's basically Father James just going from one person to the next. And you know, and they say something really bizarre to him, and then he goes to somebody else, and then they do the same thing. Yeah, or somebody, just, or somebody just,
0: takes a piss on a painting. I mean, just weird
2: shit. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Just, yeah, just odd stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, it's just this weird, just nightmarish kind of, uh, you know, kind of thing through the whole movie. And then, of course, there's times when the people start getting together, and that's when I, I always feel like things are escalating. Um, so, yeah, so I love Emmett Walsh. I love Aiden Gillen, too, who I know from uh, Game of Thrones, among other things. And he is just a smarmy prick in just about everything he's ever been in. And he's so really much more ahead. so
0: here than even Game of Thrones. At least <laughs> yeah. in Game of Thrones, it's all like this kind of like sub level of him being a prick. And this is yeah. just an
2: asshole. Yeah, yeah. and He's just like making jokes about people being killed. And yeah, and it, it's just. It's just he's just really just con. I don't want to say con. I guess condescending is right, but he's he's just an asshole most of the movie, <laughs> and it's and he's so good at it. He's so good at it. Um. So yeah. So th- those two. Um. Of course, as you said, you know, Gle- uh, Brendan Gleeson is incredible. Dynamite. Uh, and and he has this. He has this kind of. You can see him struggling to be to stay straight laced. Like he wants to be a calming presence. And he wants to stay calm and he does that pretty well through most of the movie as he's having really terrible things said to him and, and, you know, just people just patronizing him and, and insulting him and, you know, kind of taking turns doing all these different things to him. And, and we get just these moments, like you said, the, the, the one about his su- daughter suicide attempt is that kind of him trying to deal with, with something closer to himself. And then later on, rage kind of starts to come out and it's just amazing when it does. And, and the way, even that they, that, that uh, McDonough depicts that there's, there's a scene where let's just say things are escalating and you feel like there's going to be an explosion and there is, but we don't see it. We see the aftermath of it. And that's, I think it's better than if we actually saw the explosion, we just see the aftermath yeah. And and it's very low key as this much of this movie is. Um, but it's it's really well done and it's really effective.
0: Man, yeah. Gosh, you guys really set me up for a lot of stuff here because I want to say M. Emmett Walsh is old as fuck in this movie. Holy shit, this guy. Yeah. yeah. And he's so good. And I gotta remind everybody, this is the dude. Because this is the movie I rem- remember him from, even though he's been in everything. We couldn't. We would yeah. spend way too much time reading his filmography because he's probably yeah. been in a thousand things. The guy's in everything. and uh, But Blood Simple, the first Coen Brothers yeah. film. This guy mm-hmm. is the, uh, if I remember correctly, because it's been a long time. It's on my shelf back there, but I haven't yeah. seen it in a very, very long time. I've bought like two versions of that since I've seen it last. Um, so that means I've actually had a version of the film that I never watched, mm. ever. <laughs> But anyways, uh, but he's the bad guy in that movie, if I remember correctly, uh, playing uh-huh. a yeah. private investigator. And he is so good here because he's like this yeah. American writer that got away from the States. And he's like this expat, basically, that, you know, mm-hmm. is uh, just this hermit on this. He lives on this island that you have to take a boat to get to. Like, there's no way <laughs> on or off. So Brendan Gleason's yeah. father, James, like takes him food and and books, and magazines, and newspaper, like, all the things he would need to kind of keep up to date and uh, and to survive. And I think that's another thing about Father James, is uh, I think it's important to to remind everyone this film would fall apart without Father James. He's in every scene, and he's he's the center of the web, right? Like, everyone webs off of him in this film, and he's just the absolute most pivotal character in it. But, like... With, for example, you know M Emmett Walsh, right? He's he's talking to this writer, and he's always he always comes at it as this this kind guy, right? But he still mm-hmm. questions him. But then he's like, "All right, I'll think about it about getting the gun, right?" And he and but he does think yeah. about it. Like you see him in scenes thinking about it. He's actually like considering these people as human, and no matter how shitty they are to him, every time. I mean, Emmett Walsh isn't really shitty. I mean, he's like snarky, like the three of us are in chats and stuff, you know, like we're smart, (laughs) snarky assholes to each other, but we love each other. And that's very much their relationship. And uh, but with all the characters, like Father James is always there, no matter how many times these people are assholes. He always goes back. Now, he doesn't always put up with their shit, but he always (laughs) goes back, right? So uh the the guy that pissed on the painting, help me find this guy. I don't know why I don't have his <laughs> his name. Somebody find him for me while I continue. Yeah, working
1: um, working on him. Okay.
0: But anyways, like, you know, people do terrible things. We talked about Veronica uh played by uh, Orla O'Rourke who basically every time she comes on screen, she's talking about her sexual experiences or what she will be doing, essentially <laughs> sins she will be committing. That she needs yep. to preemptively, you know, ask for forgiveness for in this kind of like snarky, you know, <laughs> rye way or whatever, um, <laughs> dude. But this all again, I, I say all this to say it does. It could f- to some people, dude. There's a huge spider on my ceiling. Anyways, <laughs> I'm gonna try to ignore that for now. But anyways, <laughs> sorry that like startled me. But anyways, so um, but the thing about Father James is like no like. No matter what, he's there for them. That spider just completely threw off all of my uh, my thought, but I'll come back to it.
2: Have you gotten the the piss painter? Uh, I'm no, I I can't even find him. We're the um, worst. I don't, I don't remember what his name is. His character name is. I'm gonna find him.
0: Uh yeah. But anyways, um. Also, we haven't talked about Leo, played by Owen Sharp. Who's the guy that yeah. talks like he's in like some like 1930s gangster movie the whole time? Yes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. what do you see? What do you say? You know that guy?
2: Yeah. And, and he's very flamboyantly gay, also. So it's like an obscene, and he, and he's very open to talking about his his exploits. So there's this, yeah, there's <laughs> this great, just complete dirtiness to everything he says.
0: Yeah, absolutely it's crazy cuz there's one well, there's one point in the film where he breaks that right and he yeah. goes back to his and i think that's a without that scene i would hate that character to be honest yeah. <laughs> but because you see that this is like him coping with all of the shit that he opens up to you know what i mean yeah. uh-huh. um, and that he acts like he's very proud of or that he's like that it's fun but you very to me at least you get a, a clear glimpse that like this guy's hurting and back to like my introduction where like Everyone has pain here. And mm-hmm. the film is essentially about how Father James balances or or uh, carry, helps carry that pain to some extent. Um, and w- with that in mind, uh, Father James, he is this warmth to the film to an extent. Of course, mm-hmm. he can be cold. There are scenes where he is cold. Uh, but everyone's hurt seems to be... What am I trying to say? Pacified by him, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Father James is great. Um yeah. Killian Scott plays Milo. He he's the uh, the guy that basically has no inner monologue. Uh the guy that's on like the motorcycle <laughs> or whatever that basically just says everything. Um, I don't I don't know if they're intentionally trying to make him like kind of like maybe Asperger's like light on the spectrum or something, but yeah. he very much comes off like kind of an Asperger's character. Um yeah. I understand that Asperger's has been like absorbed into the spectrum but my point is like a very uh a light autism is what the character comes off to me but um mm-hmm. man how do you guys how do you guys feel about uh Milo Joe uh
2: yeah it <laughs> he he does come in and and he's just a I don't know it it almost feels like Father James I think has difficulty understanding him dealing with him for you know for a bit and he just kind of shows up here and there and and drops something on him and it's just it's just like what what's happening <laughs> that there that scene where they're in um I don't know there there's like a party or something and 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 uh, Father James walks in and and he's not he's just standing there yeah and and they're playing you know, the music's playing and he's like oh you're not dancing and he goes oh I hate this music yeah <laughs> he's just standing there very casually <laughs> Just
0: looking, and then whenever you do see him dance, everyone's yeah. dancing, and he's literally just jumping up and down in <laughs> yeah. one spot, which is, yeah. like, hilarious yeah. to me.
1: Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I, I I think that guy's funny. Do you have any thoughts about him, Sam? Um.
1: Well, it, you can kind of see him almost... Uh, maybe turning into the, the Dom hall Gleason character mm-hmm. because he, you know, says he has murderous thoughts toward women. Yes. Um, there's kind of a weird... Uh, there's a lot of... This movie is very sexual, uh, if you think about it. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's the Veronica character always talking about her sex sexcapades. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's... Uh, you know, Leo, who, who's very open uh, about his homosexuality. Um, and I don't know, in, in a way you could say it's, it's, you know, considering it's how religious it is at the same time, it's, uh, you know, very like sex positive movie. Um, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. I'm gonna stop that <laughs> No, it's, it's okay. I, I, I put
0: you on the spot there. Um, yeah. But no. It, uh, real quick, the the piss painter is Dylan Moran playing Michael Fitzgerald. Um, okay. Or, uh, yeah. And 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 Michael to side thought is like the richest guy in this whole area. Like he's like so yeah. rich he doesn't know what to do with his money. Uh, literally, mm-hmm. they talk about this at one point to the extent of he's talking about like this painting cost me some odd tens of thousands of dollars or whatever. And I don't give a shit about it. I'll just piss on it. And then father James is like, well then do it. And he goes, okay.
2: (laughs) He just pulls it down (laughs) as father James
0: is just trying to leave. And he just like pisses on this, this painting.
2: There, there is this great shot there too, that it's like coming up between his legs and, and you like see the stream come out and you see father James's face the whole time it's happening. And, and it, it was, it's a terrific shot because it's just, he's just kind of staring, but you know, Sam, to your point about the sexuality, it's obviously, that's not a sexual moment. He's just like, I can't believe like this is happening. And they, they have this weird like relationship of trying to one up each other and, or, or call each other's bluffs on things. Or, you know, he's constantly trying to call his bluff on, because he'll just, because he, there's times when he's just like, Hey, I'm going to donate a lot of money to you guys. And he's like, you know, how much should I donate? And the one guy is like, I I don't know. And he says about like 20. And then, and then, you know, father James is like, well, if money's no object, how about 50? And then he's like, well, how about a hundred? Yeah. You know, and Mm -hmm. it's just this weird, like one-upsmanship and, and they're just continually trying to call bluffs. And it's, it's kind of funny that that's where you see these little bits of kind of personal things in father James's relationship with these people is that, you know, he, He's you know pretty antagonistic toward him and most other people who are who are antagonistic toward him, he tends to not you know be so you know he t- tends to not be so in their face about it, although he doesn't really back down from people you know that uh, you know as you've been saying austin as well. so it, it, that's kind of where a lot of the fun comes in is, is just like okay, so this is a different relationship now.
0: Yeah, yeah, David Wilmot plays Father Leary, who is the other priest I've mentioned several times. And whenever he's talking in that scene with Michael, uh, Father Leary is over the moon to get this 20 grand. He doesn't care. Yeah. Because, you know, again, it goes back to that old cliche as well, as like anytime you can give money to a church, they're going to be all about taking it from you, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, but then, like, I never see it so much. I mean, there is definitely, like, an, an aggressive conflict conflicting relationship between Father James and Michael for sure but it's more of like it's less I feel like Father James being personal or having some sort of like personal response it's more of like I don't have patience for your performative bullshit like you're you're you're, there are other issues you refuse to tackle to kind of deal with this shit and this is how you're coping with this you're being an asshole deal with it and I think by the end of the film we kind of start to see some of these characters doing that, like the uh, you, it basically validates Father James's approach that we might see as kind of harsh or mm-hmm. or aggressive or or unpriest like or un, unpastor like or however you want to look at that. Um, but by the end, we kind of see these things work a little bit. You know, I have a friend, yeah. I have a friend uh, who was a pastor uh, for several many years, and he's just tatted up from like arm to like fingertips and his neck. I mean, just super tatted up dude will cuss as much, if not more than me, dude, like, I mean, just the opposite of what you think of as a pastor yet. Like everybody loves this guy. Like he's it's the not f- Robert
1: Abner. Is No,
0: it? no, but, but Abner, you could throw ab. They're very good friends. These two people. Oh, Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, you could throw Abner in there <laughs> if you're listening, Abner, we love you. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, but, but Father James is like always kind of what they need. And, uh, I, I feel like I keep getting into this cyclical thing where I start talking about Father James and I just want to keep going back to, to how he is what they need. But I, I guess everything keeps leading me back to that because that's kind of the point, I guess. Isaac Debunk Banc- uh, do, de, uh, Bancolet, that's how you say his name. Isaac de it plays Simon. He's been in a ton of stuff. If you've if you don't know who I'm talking about, uh go look at his filmography and you'll know him. He was in Casino Royale, he was in a bunch of um Jim Jarmusch films. Uh I mean he's been in tons and tons of stuff. Uh but he's great here too, but he has a very small role. But he's like like the random like black foreign guy in the Irish place. Like and and I say it that way because like that's his character. Like like yeah. everyone's like, that's the black guy, the outsider. You know, like he's always yeah. seen as like uh, that character but that, that there's some interesting stuff that happens there I don't really want to go on about uh, these characters much more but I mean everyone kind of knocks this out of the park and I, I can't stress enough how you know John Michael McDonough and his brother Martin have similarities in many ways with the way that they use their kind of extreme dark humor and everything but what I've noticed with both of them and I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on this uh, is in this film for example John Michael McDonough uses this, like, shocking dark humor that could really take you out of the film. Like, some people, not me, because I'm, like, all about it. But, I mean, some people, it could really be a hang-up. That was kind of the reason for my opening uh with you guys, where I asked about, you know, did you get hung up on the glib, sometimes shocking cynicism and irreverent dark humor? Because some people would get hung up on this. And I've read things about that. Like, some people can't get past mm-hmm. it. And the fact that they're kind of making light uh in many ways of the pedophilia that was just rife through the priesthood or uh, like everyone's making jokes about all of the, like uh, we talked about the suicide where no, 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 you made the classic error. You cut down, not sideways or whatever. I just hit my mic, but uh, like, you know, they make light of all this dark humor, but what I love about John Michael and Martin McDonough, the brothers is both of them in their films. They always have an underlying truth or like a, a really powerful message beneath Mm -hmm. the surface that it's almost like they're intentionally challenging you. Like, can you see what I'm giving you? Mm -hmm. Because I'm going to put all this shit over it to mask it. So it just looks like some fun, dark comedy that's irreverent. And you're going to laugh at a bunch of stuff that shouldn't be laughed at. But then like, I think this film in particular, out of all of them that I've seen uh, really has something at the underneath that at, by the end of the film, that subtext or whatever that underlying message I think comes out pretty clear. I'm not asking you guys to spoil the end, but in terms of how the dark humor or or the glibness or stuff that could kind of be hangups for some people, how do you guys perceive that as opposed to the message that you kind of get by the end of the film? Is that question clear?
1: Um, yeah, I I think so. I don't know if this will answer it, but I'm going to, I'm going to just go for it. Um, I think, I don't know, I think part of what you're asking is, you know, how does the warmth ultimately come through all of this? um, Yeah, Yeah. and I think it's because the movie never lets itself get that cynical. Uh, I think a moment that um, uh, is a good example of that is when... Father James is in the bar and the doctor, uh, Ian Gillen, is talking to him about um, some procedure that went horribly wrong and it led to a child um, uh, becoming deaf and blind and, you know, something horrible like that.
0: Yeah, the Johnny-got-his-gun scenario where they're alive, but they can't move, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't speak, like... Yeah, like you're trapped right. in your own brain. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And he's basically in that moment trying to say, you know, I mean, he's essentially saying maybe there is no God and, you know, yeah. uh, life's a bitch. And then, I mean, that's a very cynical moment. And it could have you thinking, like, wow, life sucks. Um, but it doesn't get too cynical uh, because Father James cuts in and says, why the fuck would you tell me that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's almost, you know, it's almost like he's speaking for the audience right there. He's saying, you know, God damn, why are we getting this cynical? Yeah. Um so I think uh the movie's constantly disarming you, um, and like Father James himself. Um yeah. and I, I think that's why it works. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's, yeah, and it is, it's, you know, and I, this is what we've talked about kind of throughout is, is that the kind of just the, to me, the layout of this movie, the the way this movie moves through the the problem, you know, the, the, the classic, you know, the, the classic narrative structure, right. Is the rising action. Everything keeps rising and rising. And then it, and then there's the climax and the resolution. And this movie has that, but it doesn't, in a somewhat more unorthodox way than other movies do just because of the way that he just, you know, Father James just seems to be bouncing around from person to person and they, they all have their own little problems that he's dealing with. And it, it makes you feel like in a way it makes you feel like you're almost overwhelmed with it, which is the point to a degree, right? That he's dealing with all of these people's issues. And even if he fixes one, even if he solves a problem, there here's ten more right on their heels, and that you know that that's very disarming. That was really disarming to me through the whole movie. Was coming to the next person. I'm like, well, yeah, but what about the people who are? What about the the guy, the, the lady that's having the affair? And. And you know, what about the doctor? And okay, well now what about the um the the rich guy the, the who's peeing on paintings and and then well now we and we haven't even talked about you know then we're like we're like well now we gotta get into you know father james and his daughter and there's just all these little these little threads bouncing around and in the meantime we're like what about what about the that opening scene? You know, is that gonna come back on us and or is that was that just kind of a throwaway moment? It's it's kind of like you know, I don't know as as we're going along. So um and it by the time we come back to the climax of everything, you know, to the climax, we, by design, I think, haven't really been thinking about it too much, you know, thinking about what the ending is going to be because it's just, it feels like it could go on and on with no end. Yeah. And then, you know, and, and then the climax kind of begins and you're like, oh yeah, this is the thing that, you know, this is, this is the one thing we haven't been back to for a while. So yeah, uh, I, it, it all, it, it all kind of comes full circle at that point.
0: Yeah. I think they did a good job at, at misleading or not misleading you, but um, at uh, helping you forget because yeah. peppered throughout, I think in three different scenes, maybe four, there is mm-hmm. someone of the higher, the hierarchy or whatever of priesthood or like in that mm-hmm. whole organization or whatever that would yeah. talk to Father James and it would remind you, oh, yeah, he was threatened. Like this was a th-, like, you know, and they, they remind you periodically through the film and then you're kind of immediately, yeah. you forget it because. All of these scenes with each character, the 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 uh, piss painting guy or whatever, yeah, uh, Michael, uh-huh. like that scene could come off as just being a one off, means nothing, right? Like, because yeah. all he's doing yeah. is talking. Like, yeah, it's kind of building who Michael is, but like, what's mm-hmm. the point of this scene, Veronica? Every single time, like whenever, whenever. Uh, Father James is in a, I think he's in like a coffee shop or something like a little Mm -hmm. diner or whatever. And she walks up to him and she's like, Hey, I'm glad I saw you here. Uh, I'm about to sin. I need to, I need to confess whatever. (laughs) And she hasn't done it yet. You know what I mean? And then, and then of course Simon is outside the window and she says, my ride's here. I got to go, you know, and (laughs) and he's not driving anything. So you get like the double entendre there or whatever. Uh And um, yeah, there's just, like, every character, every scene with them kind of comes off as almost pointless, right? Like, yes. and, and and I was watching this with my wife, and uh, at the end of the film, she goes, oh, okay, and she, like, gets up and goes to the bathroom, <laughs> yeah. and I think that's, like, a very easy response to have if mm-hmm. you don't... And I'm not saying she didn't get it. I, I, I don't mean to project or imply anything on her. Uh, I don't even know if she liked it. We didn't really talk much about it because it was, like, bedtime. <laughs> so yeah. she, like, went to bed, and I I stayed up and probably geeked around on something but anyway so like each of these things though back to Father James this is like what I've been rambling about the whole thing Mm. it's all about him it's all about like his grief it's all about him coping with it by like helping these people and it doesn't matter if any of these stories with the exception of the confession I think that has to be resolved Mm. by the end right Right. Um, and to an extent it is without ruining it like they'd come back to it at the very least yeah. But all that shit in between, all it does is develops Father James. That's the only purpose. We don't need to know any more about Dr. Frank, Aidan uh, Gillen's character, or uh, quite frankly, we don't even really need to know more than they give us about Fiona, his daughter. I mean, that that's right. for like the personal aspect, the non-priestly aspect of uh, Father James. We learn through that relationship we don't need to know more about the writer or Simon or Teresa or Veronica or Milo. We don't need to know anything else. What we learn through those is Father James' responses to their experience. We learn mm-hmm. about how he thinks, how he feels, how he helps, how he warms the coldness in people and vice versa. And the scene brought up about Aidan Gillen where he tells that horrifying story uh, about the 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 kid being hurt in that like anesthesia accident or whatever. And yeah. when he goes, why the fuck would you tell me that story? He, like, gets up to, like, fight him, you know, and and the doctor backs away in the most comical way and gets in, like, this, like, kung fu stance. Dude, it's, or, like, karate stance, I guess, would be better. It's just the greatest. Like, you know, and it's it's those types. It's so effortless. Like, it doesn't look like they're trying to be funny to me. It looks right. like this character would literally get in that stance if he were threatened. <laughs> yeah. And I'm laughing at how ridiculous you are, Doctor. Um, yeah. But yeah, I like, did either of you have a problem with the, and I'll pass it to you, Sam. Did either of you have a problem with the way that this was structured? Because I think it's perfect whenever you look at yeah. it as, when you find the underlying message, which I think is, for me, is clear by the end. And whenever you realize that the whole film's about Father James, not the none of the other the affairs or any of the other stuff really matters. It's about how it develops Father James. Did you guys feel that way, or did you have any hangups with it, Sam? What'd you think?
1: Um, well, the structure worked for me. I think the way that uh, it you know revolves around Father James as he's kind of wandering through this ravaged land of of. Uh, you know strange characters that reminded me a lot of uh, the seventh seal um yeah. and you know the most obvious comparison is that by the end he's you know confronting death on the beach i don't know if you can get a more obvious homage to seventh seal than that uh but i was also going to say um in terms of these encounters with characters that seem, um, you know, that are seemingly pointless, they actually lead to incredible payoffs. As you said, Austin, uh, the one that stands out in my mind is, um, you know, the, the guy pissing on the painting leads to this, leads to this exploration of, uh, detachment. And, um, near the end, uh, that character, the, the rich guy says, he basically admits to having depression and having a, a sense of detachment from from life itself, and um, it's one of and it leads to a moment where Father James actually relates to him um, later on when he's confronted about uh, not really reacting to the Catholic Church abuse scandal. He says, "Well." You know, I felt detached from it. I when you read something in a newspaper, you know, it's it's hard to, you know, to feel anything. Yeah. So it's kind of amazing how you know a scene of a guy pissing on a, a painting to symbolize detachment leads to this revelation from Father James. Um, I mean, that's a, a pretty big confession he makes. That you know Absolutely. he felt. That he yeah. felt detached from, you know, uh, his fellow priests committing these horrible crimes. Um, so, you know, the fact that a movie can have this seemingly, um, you know, kind of pointless uh, uh, scene with a character and lead to something so revelatory and cathartic at the end is, is you know, pretty incredible. Dude, yeah.
0: just real quick and uh Joe if you have anything to say I'll, I'll pass it yeah. off to you if, if you want just give me the signal there. But uh yeah, but I I'll, I'll, I'll um on that dude you're really just reinforcing my point of like by the end you realize how much they need him. Right? Mm-hmm. Like like yeah. uh, like that is a the the scene with Michael the rich guy is so an uh exposition of the heart Right. Of the film where he is really coming clean. And there are points where Father James, like someone will confront him and say, what do I do about this father? And he goes, I I don't know. So like he's always honest. Like you get from the beginning that he's never just going to tell you some bullshit like Father Leary, you know, David Wilmot's character might kind of be performative and say, oh, no, but God will take care of you. You know, no. Father James is like, fuck that. God's not going to take care of you. You got to deal with this shit, you know, and I don't know how to help you. Like I don't know how to help you with this, but once you st- once you get the next piece, bring it to me. And maybe we can put it together. Uh, put it together together, right? Um, yeah. And and I love that about Father James, but that is dude. That is such a pivotal moment, Sam, of like yeah. w- just one of the pivotal moments of the film. If we were in a West Garing class, I would say this is one of the signature scenes, uh, as we <laughs> used to have to write about a lot. Um, and and it's it's Michael's confession is kind of and. Uh, exposition of all of their feelings about Father James. And we kind of get that by the end. I won't spoil anything, but through it, kind of almost a montage scene. Um, but uh, Joe, if, if you had anything you wanted to say about what Sam said, I'll pass it off to you. I do have another question I want to ask, but I want to make sure you get a chance to get in
2: there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I kind of want to go back um, a little bit to that. Um, to, to the climax of just a little bit, uh, sure. again, without, we're not going to spoil anything. But, um, you know, we, we talked about that confession that we see at the very beginning. And it, I think it's important to note that Father James knows who this person is, right? The, the movie is, is this, in, a, in a way, part of one of the, you know, one of the, the narratives of it is this mystery as to who this is, right? Like, who is the person who did this?
0: Dude, you're and, leading perfectly into my question by the way. Good, go ahead. Good.
2: <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, and you know, and it's important to note that again that he knows who this person is and then it and it really struck me when we find out who that person was that he's interacted with this person multiple times throughout the film. Like he's a, one of the people that we you know, we see pretty frequently and he interacts with him in a very in a very different way than I think we would, you know, I, I would suspect have suspected, you know, if, if if someone says they're going to kill me, you know, and I'm around them again, I'm not going to necessarily be pleasant to them. And, you know, (laughs) and, and straight, you know, like it it would be, I think it would be very noticeable that there was something wrong at the very least. (laughs) And, And the way that the film is structured, they, they're very careful about not doing that. There's no change. When he sees this person or interacts with this person. And it's it's pretty interesting what it's kind of like an oh wow, that's okay. Um it, at that moment. And it, it's it's really very it's really a, a one of the better things about the movie to me is that you know to is that moment having that realization like oh wow he's just hung around with this person the whole time. And you know, I mean, I mean, not again, this is not even a, I, I know I'm, I'm kind of being this misleading too, but I don't want I guess hung around with them the whole time is not, but multiple times through the course of the movie. And, and it's a, it's really a, a fun way, I guess, if, if you could call it that, to, to reveal who that person is, is, is to give that, is to have that kind of almost, it's almost a subconscious thing that, you know, it's, it's not showy at all. The, the person just literally just kind of ambles up, but it's, it it was interesting for me that I'm pretty sure that's the reaction that McDonough wanted, you know, yeah. from the person from the viewer, and and he certainly got it for me. So um, I I really I really enjoyed that aspect of it too.
0: Yeah, I, I want to say this, and I'm going to pass my question off to you both because this is like you yeah. perfectly led in to my question. I want to say this one thing though. Uh, I think that's a testament to. I mean, first off, it's it's a narrative technique. To not treat yeah. anyone different so they can continue to mislead you. But also, yeah. I think in the film, within what it's doing, um, I think it's a testament to Father James still. You now, yeah. like going back to that, like, he's not going to treat anyone differently. He's, you know, like he's going. I honestly don't think he believed that that person would actually uh, meet him, you know, the yeah. week later. You know, I don't know if he was convinced for sure that this person would show up. Um, yeah. so that's also, I think maybe a testament because all of them, every person in the movie is a liar, <laughs> you know, liar. like they're yes, all lying yeah. to him constantly. So mm-hmm. how, like, why would he believe them? But this, th- my question for both of you, uh, kind of getting into the end without spoiling, did you know who the parishioner was that confessed at the beginning? Cause I'll start with myself and I'll pass off to you. The moment they spoke, I knew who it was. So I mm-hmm. actually – because the voice was so distinct to me that yeah. I didn't have that experience. I felt like I knew the entire time. And yeah. it wasn't until one of my fr- I showed it to one of my friends. He goes, oh, man, I had no idea it was going to be that guy. I'm like, yeah. wait, that's a thing? Like, And I had to like <laughs> think about it because his voice was yeah. so distinct. And that was like the first time I saw it. It doesn't bother me anymore. But the first time I saw it, it kind of bummed me out because I was like, mm-hmm. oh, well, that would – like." I kind of wish okay. I there was a bit less of an obvious clue for me, but then as mm-hmm. I've talked to other people, they didn't have that experience. So I'm so fascinated to know starting with Sam and then we'll go to Joe. Like, sure. Did you guys know who the parishioner was from the beginning again, without spoiling?
1: Um, I did. Yeah. Um, and I didn't realize, you know, that maybe there was supposed to be some ambiguity there. Same. Um, mm-hmm. I think it actually works better uh, with you knowing who it is mm-hmm. because, like Joe said, um, it's kind of surprising that there's no tension between them, and you're kind of fascinated that there's no tension between them. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not sure it uh, – it would be interesting to see it through the eyes of someone who doesn't realize who it is because mm-hmm. I think it works so well knowing who it is. Yeah. So. Yeah. It, I, and I mean, obviously my
2: answer is that I I didn't know, but it was kind of a function of, for me, of just forgetting about it. You know, like I I picked it up back up about halfway through. Yeah. And by that time I hadn't, you know, I hadn't considered because going into the movie, I was, you know, I was very, I was really fresh in the movie. I, I hadn't seen any trailers for this movie. I didn't you know. I knew nothing about it other than Brendan Gleeson was in it. So and you
0: call yourself a
2: critic, George. <laughs> right. No, well, just kidding. <laughs> and and you know, the the you know, the the kind of the truth of it was I I didn't expect there to be any sort of you know, thing like that in this movie. I just thought this would be something, you know, I thought this would be something different. So when as that's coming up, as that talking is happening, I'm just not really paying that much attention to it. So once it once it happened, you know, once the moment happens and, and this person's revealed, I'm like, oh, that's, oh, that's right. I should have kind of been thinking about this maybe, but I w- wasn't, I was paying attention to, as you said, all of the other humor and everything else and kind of the general direction of the movie. And then this happens and I just thought, oh, wow. Yeah. And then back to, yeah, man, he's been with this person multiple times to the movie and it didn't, there was no indication that this was the person that he's, you know, that he's uncomfortable around this person at all. So um, it, it kind of struck me. I, I mean, it wasn't a, it was more of a, just like an, oh yeah kind of moment for me that, that I didn't stop to consider any of it. Um, it. And it was, and it was probably, I don't know, a half hour in before I even caught considered there's some sort of mystery here yeah. um, at all. So it, and maybe it wasn't intended to be, but I, I think that what I I kind of felt like the reaction was that, Maybe that's what I was supposed to feel so that, you know, it it didn't bother me. I didn't feel like I missed it.
0: Sure. Yeah, there's, yeah. Uh, I, I think, uh, in my mind, I feel like it was the intent, even though it f- yeah. seemed to have failed on Sam and I, but I think uh-huh. it's because we're also, just based on your introduction to this character, uh, mm-hmm. still speaking vaguely, uh, your introduction yeah. of Sam to this character, I think we both also knew this character from other things, and it'd be mm-hmm. like, Christopher Walken was like <laughs> the guy. It's like, yeah, that's Christopher Walken. Duh. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, obviously, yeah. like, yeah. hey, fuck. Fa- I can't do his voice. I'm not even going to try. But the point is, like, I was going to try to do a a thing. But, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. But the, the important thing, though, is listeners, if if you haven't seen Calvary, watch it. And then hopefully you like it enough to watch it again. Because if you watch it twice, you'll get both effects. Like, if you watch sure. it the first time and you, you don't know by the end, watch it again and see how the film changes knowing now, because I do think it is like, I, I, of course I only have one experience, but uh, like I can think of how it would be different if you didn't. And Joe, I think you did a good job at kind of explaining that as well. Um, As we kind of start to wind down a little bit uh, for the end of this discussion here, I want to give each of you an opportunity. If you have any kind of talking points or, or notes about the film that you want to bring up, Or, or, uh, kind of, we can go anywhere with this, but just wherever you want to go, if you have any final points you want to make, uh, about the film, by all means, uh, Sam, do you have anything you'd like to say?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I, uh, you know, the first time I saw it, um, I loved it and thought it was great, but I always expected this would be kind of a, kind of a one timer. Um, it's a very sad movie. Um, uh but you know I'm I'm really glad I watched it again because I feel like I had um an even a, an even better experience this time um and um you know uh, I think the first time I saw it I hadn't seen uh, the seventh seal I hadn't seen some of the films that it now reminds me of um but yeah, I'm just glad I got a chance to to experience it again, and you know that's thanks to you guys. So <laughs> you're
0: welcome. Um, <laughs> um, no, I'm yeah, I'm glad that you got to rewatch it as well. Uh, yeah. I think it's definitely worth rewatching. Something Matthew Sosie um, said to me was because uh, we were talking about Bergman movies. Because we're gonna, I'm doing an early Bergman marathon right now. It's funny you bring up Seven Seal. We're not doing Seven Seal, but. Uh, I did early Bergman, which is pre-Smiles of a Summer Night, like 1946 to about 1954. I'm doing that personally right now. So on this episode, we have a a couple of them. And then uh, that's leading up to an extended kind of long-form discussion of seven different Bergman films with Matthew Sosie. That'll be coming up at the very end, our last episode in June and into July. And uh, one thing he said is is with films like this, and I'm going to throw Calvary into it, which does not feel like a Bergman film, though there are those kind of overlaps with themes like <laughs> Sam was mentioning. But Sosi said, I think people should rewatch a lot of these movies every five years because your mm-hmm. life experiences are going to... Like give you a different lens to basically see the film through, and that you'll have a different experience. And not every movie's that way, I don't think. I mean, yes, no, no. And yes, and no. But I'm saying not to this sure. effect. But I think this film in particular would be a good one to revisit because I even had a different experience from the first time I saw it. And mm-hmm. even in 2014, I was on the fence about it being my favorite film. I knew it was way up in my top ten for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, this time man, it's still so good, but I like, look at the other contenders. <laughs> you know? um, but anyways, Joe, your kind of yeah. uh final thoughts or any points you want to bring up before we're done.
2: Yeah. Yeah. This is another movie that, you know, this is a movie I would never have watched probably, you know, I, I, I didn't see it in 2014. I, you know, for whatever reason, and it's not one I probably would have just come back to revisit um, just for no reason. So uh, again, I'm glad I, that I did. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot to be gained, you know, from this movie. So, um, there's, you know, a a lot to be going on. There's, there's plenty of, you know, like, like we said, the humor is, is right there and is spot on. And the, the underlying meaning behind it is also is, is pretty, is pretty timely and, you know, for the time certainly, but it's something that kind of still resonates today, oddly enough. Um, so yeah it's it's got it's got some power to it and it's got some great humor and it certainly is worth watching and and as you said maybe even revisiting f- from time to time.
0: Yeah. Yeah and and also like you mentioned it being relevant to now, you know, like I mean we yeah. had last year we had a documentary athlete A. It still kind of deals yeah. with 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 uh like the periphery of the issue. Like it might not be priests having this issue, sure. but in that case, you know, it's it's uh, Olympic physicians um, yeah. But it's the same kind of concept. Like, we're still worried about people in power and how they are tr- with some sort of authority, whether it be spiritual or actual authority, dealing yeah. with children. I mean, that's, like, mm-hmm. clearly a thing. And I, I, I can't say enough that, you know, we brought up Spotlight. If you want, you know, a less – I mean, that movie's a bummer. But yeah. If you if you don't want to sit and just watch a documentary about this and you want to watch something that's both entertaining and, you know, still <laughs> – like a bummer like watch spotlight because this is the first viewing i had where i really considered the history there like the the history with all of that and where it fit in that history when it came out and all of that and i do think it's pretty it is important to why people treat father james that way and why people treat father leary that the way they do and um and how father james treats father leary (laughs) like i mean just like the the whole thing I absolutely love this movie so much. I encourage uh, all of our listeners to go watch uh, John Michael McDonough's movies and his brother's because, again, uh, one day I'm sure we'll talk about... Uh, I, I guarantee Bruges is on my list somewhere because I love Martin yeah. McDonough uh-huh. um, so much. Um, you should just go, if you're listening to this right now and you haven't seen Imbrugge, um, or to a lesser extent, in my opinion, but still really great, uh, Seven Psychopaths, uh, go check those out as well. Just some more recommendations yeah. for you. Again, last thing. Anybody want to mm-hmm. leave us off with anything?
1: Oh, um, I'll say one thing. I uh, I kind of wish I had watched this movie um, in 2020 because I feel like I could have used uh, Father James back then. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's 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 so comforting. Um, so yeah, I'll just add that.
0: Yeah, and Brennan Gleason is always like he just has the look in this movie. Like the teddy oh, bear. Yeah. He's the teddy bear. Yeah. Uh, Joe, I'm going to take it as a no, but do you have a zinger for us? <laughs> hey, hey, hey.
2: That was your homework I for do, this week. I do know what felching is, yes.
1: <laughs>
2: Clutch. All right, guys. Thanks.
1: Thank you.
0: All right, everybody. I just want to send out a special thanks to Sam Watermeyer for talking with us. And, you know, we had a great time. Uh, also, Joe, as always, you know, thanks for, for being on here. The three of us had a good time. Sam will be back, I'm sure, if I don't ban him again. Um, the, the Me banning him is like an ongoing joke. We'll just bring all the listeners into this. Um, but hopefully he doesn't earn a real ban. Anyways... Uh, that was Calvary from 2014. Definitely go check this movie out, dude. It's wild. Uh, if you if if you have a hard time with extremely irreverent dark comedy, maybe this will trigger something in you. Uh, but it's 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 a real gem. And even Joe, a film critic, didn't get around to this that year and hadn't even heard of it, if I remember correctly. And if he did, he didn't know anything about it, at least. And uh, that that's just a complete. Just tragedy to me. I mean, you should really go seek that movie out. And then the early Bergman films that we did, Two Joy and Summer Interlude. Not a huge fan of Two Joy. Not really much of a fan at all. I'm pretty indifferent about it. But Summer Interlude, really fantastic. Loved it. Gave it a four out of five. Fantastic time. You should go check that out. And please... By all means, go check out these Bergman movies. None of them I've watched have been a waste of my time. There have been, you know, I, I don't like some of them that much, and, and some I like a lot. I mean, it, it really does vary. And uh, here shortly, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be bringing on Matthew Sosie, and we're going to be doing long-form discussions of some of Bergman's bigger films and 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 more prominent works, so we can really kind of dig into those. So this is kind of, this early Bergman stuff is kind of a a... a a prologue to that so to speak or or a prelude or whatever word you want to use that's what we're doing but that pretty much sums up this week Uh, I really appreciate you guys listening hey we love you so much good night good luck and take it easy